0: We'll open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 9. This morning we're going to be looking at one of the most sweet and endearing, the most comforting and hopeful, the most assuring passages in the entire Bible and specifically articulated by Mark. As you know, Mark's source for his data, he was not one of the 12 apostles, was likely Peter. And you certainly get the, um, the flavor of an eyewitness in this account. I'm going to title this sermon as a, for, with a quote out of the text, Help My Unbelief. Mark chapter nine, let me read the text for us in beginning in verse 14 When they came back to the disciples they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes were arguing with them Immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus they were amazed and began running up to greet him And he asked them What are you discussing with them and one of the crowd answered Teacher I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out. And they could not do it. And he answered them and said, "O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring, bring him, bring the boy to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him immediately, the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. It's often thrown him into both the fire and into the water to destroy him. But but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I I, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, It came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. The connection between a Christian and what he or she believes, as well as a Christian and God himself, is faith. And faith, faith is a curious thing. It's a, and an odd reality. What makes it so mysterious and so special is that faith connects with realities that are beyond the five senses. Faith involves realities that you cannot see. Faith involves realities that you cannot hear or smell or touch or taste. However, the inability of our senses to touch things that can only be grasped by faith doesn't negate their realities because only faith can apprehend and comprehend them. Now lest you begin thinking this is nonsense, you all have exercised an enormous amount of faith in realities that you cannot perceive by the senses this morning. I am amazed that this is my cellular telephone. I've been told That in any given building in America, there are accessible multiple billion, with a B, cell phone signals if you have the right receptor. From all around the globe, those cell phone signals can find their place and their way into this room. Can anyone see them, touch them, taste them? And yet, most of you believe them, you will... I hope not make a phone call during the service, but probably likely today. or Wi-Fi, wireless fidelity. It's always amazing that we can access indescribable amounts of information through wireless connectivity. Can't see it, the senses don't work, but we believe it. How do we and why do we believe that cell phone signals, that Wi-Fi signals work? Because we see the consequences of that. It's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter three. How do you know the Holy Spirit is real? How, you know, how do you know that God himself is moving and acting? Is like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of it. Faith is like that. We don't see things apprehended by faith, but we can apprehend the effects of them. The writer to the Hebrews actually defines faith for us. He says, now faith is the assurance. Think about that word, the assurance, the, the confidence of things hoped for, not things we hope will happen, things we long and hope in as realities we can't see but believe. And it's the conviction or the evidence of things you can't see, you can't touch them with the senses. But you have to keep going. For by it, by faith, men of old gained approval, speaking to a whole list of men in Hebrews chapter 11, specifically Abraham, who gained approval by God by simply believing in realities that he could not apprehend by the senses. And by faith... The writer says, We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. It's very interesting that the writer says, The very first chapter of the Bible, the very first place anyone begins when they open God's word, is an exercise of faith that God Himself is the creator. I'm all for creation science, but ultimately, believing the creation is not proven by any evidence. Is proven by the Spirit of God working in the faith of a believer to believe and take God at His word. Now, we have often come back to a mental formula in our church. Let me remind you of that. When you encounter a trial, a difficulty, a stress in your life, asking three questions is so important What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I feel is obviously the the reflex and response of the heart to affliction, to trials, to suffering, to disappointment, to persecutions, to disapproval, to disillusionment. What do I think is right in the middle of those, the feeling and and the knowing. What do I think is how we operate, It's, it's how we choose to interpret and respond. But then what do I know? What do I believe? What do I hold to be true? To get to that final statement of what do I believe, what do I know, you have to exercise faith because the realities of feeling are so prominent and evident. What do I feel, what do I think, what do I know? What do I believe? And without the eyes of faith, getting to that that bedrock of belief would be impossible. The story before us this morning pulled by the quill of Mark, helps us to move from feelings and doubts to confidence and faith. It's a mini classroom. In fact, we can call it a crash course on faith. As we dissect it together, I wanna show you three sections in a crash course on faith three parts, three movements, three classes in this class, three chapters in this book, three sections in a crash course on faith. And the genius of the Spirit of God, the genius of Mark to include this, the details that he is providing for us, probably through the experience of Peter, I trust are going to encourage you today no matter where you are in your walk with Christ. If you're coming to him in curiosity, if you've walked with him many years, there is something in this passage For us all. The first section in this crash course of faith is in verses 14 to 18, recognizing a lack of faith, recognizing the lack of faith. Verse 14, when they stop right there, who are they? This is Jesus and Peter and James and John. Peter has taken Peter and James and John up on the mount. He's transfigured, transfigured himself before them, shown them his glory. This is up in Caesarea Philippi, north of Galilee. He was up on a ridge with them by themselves. Moses and Elijah show up. They are overwhelmed to the point where they say, let's make three worship tents and just stay here forever. This is too good. This is the kingdom come. They disappear. They disappear. And then they hear the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then no one is there but the four of them. They come down the mountain, they have a discussion about Jesus' death, his resurrection, that there's an Elijah coming in Matthew 11. Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah, that Elijah. And they're coming back to join the other nine. Now you gotta, get this scene in your mind they've come down the ridge walking along the road there's an open space and we know that because there was a, multiple people gathered around and there's quite a commotion happening when they, these are the four, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came back to the other nine, the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and this is important, and scribes arguing with them. We've, we've met the scribes many times. They are the chief theologians. They were sent, these people, from Jerusalem to rebuke, to spy out Jesus Ultimately, they concocted a murderous scheme and would continually try to trap him so that he could be condemned by the law and put to death because he was a threat to their system, a threat to their morality, and a threat to their popularity. So Jesus and Peter and James and John returned from the mountain with this glimpse of his glory, this glimpse of Moses and Elijah, lowing the authority, identity, and mission of Jesus and immediately are faced with a conundrum. They meet up with the nine disciples who've been surrounded by these perhaps mocking scribes. Now, how do we know that? I just read the text for you. The disciples were not able, these nine, to cast out the demon from this young boy who was in having epileptic fits or, or, or convulsive fits, demonically uncontrollable fits, and they tried to cast this demon out and were unsuccessful. And you can imagine these scribes, these theologians, feeding red meat to a lion. Ha, see, this is a farce. They were taking it pretty hard, I'm sure. They've been representing Jesus while Jesus and the other three were up on the mountain and they have failed. And their failure has resulted in a debate with these religious leaders and we can imagine easily they were being mocked, scorned, ridiculed, made a public display in front of the growing crowd that was coming around to see that they had failed. Verse 15, Mark's favorite word. Immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus you can see them debating and talking to the nine. They see Jesus and the three walking down the road. The focus shifts and look what happens. They were amazed and began literally running up. <laughs> is this to greet him? The Greek is running up to tackle him almost. Just swarm him. This is the one they knew could heal. This is the one they knew could feed the thousands. This is the one they knew who could raise the dead. Remember Jairus' daughter. Debate, debate with the nine evaporates when they see Jesus and the other three men coming. And notice these words, the entire crowd. They were amazed. They run to greet him. So Jesus engages them. Notice the pronouns. The them is the crowd. He asked them, what are you discussing with them? Two thems there. Who's the thems? He asked the coming crowd, what are you debating with the nine? Hey, I saw you taking, uh, taking my guys on. What's What's the deal? Now to rightly understand this, look back at chapter six. This is very critical data. Chapter six, verse 17. Remember, we studied this in great detail. Jesus loans and appropriates his authority and his power, his healing to these men. This is important context. Mark six, verse seven. Jesus summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs, gave them authority over unclean spirits. See that? And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt. This is faith, this is dependence, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listens to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off of the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And here it is, they went out and preached that men should repent. So they got the message to go preach and they did. But look at verse 13. And they were casting out many demons, anointing the oil, with oil many sick people and healing them. They had been successful. They had cast out demons. They had healed the sick. Matthew informs us they had helped raise the dead. They had stood as a proxy for Jesus very successfully and very faithfully. Every time I read that, I'm always always amazed that Judas was one of these. There's no footnote that he was unsuccessful. These nine disciples had enjoyed success in casting out demons, but here they meet a situation that was beyond him. I mean, think of the scene. His father brings his son tortured by this, this unclean spirit looking a lot like what we call epilepsy. We, it's not, not called that. Seizures, convulsions, foaming at the mouth, stiffening out. And they began to try to cast this demon out. And apparently the more they tried, the worse the boy got. So Jesus Answers the gathering crowd who had been debating with his men. Verse 17. One of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He's paralyzed with the spirit, which which makes him unable to speak, mute. And whenever the spirit seizes him, listen listen to the detail. Imagine this was your boy. Imagine this was your son. Since he was a toddler, since he was young, this is happening. It slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He stiffens out. And so, here's the the data. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. They had enjoyed success up to this point. We'll find out later. This is a strong demon. This is no ordinary, if there's such a thing, demons. He requires special spiritual disciplines. Mark tells us of a compassionate father, the sad condition of his son, demon-possessed. And the description, again, it sounds a lot like epilepsy, but the accent here is not an epileptic seizure, but a demon-possessed motivated in a demon-caused condition, mute, unable to speak, experienced seizures, slammed to the ground, grinding his teeth, stiffening out, foaming at the mouth. And we know from Mark 6, the disciples had been successful before, but not this time. They tried. The father reports, they tried. Still the same. This one's different. As we will discover in verse 29, it's because of the lack of faith in these disciples. So the recognition, first of all, is that there is a lack of faith here going on. Uh, Something prevented them. And if you retro engineer, reverse engineer, the passage we know later, they did not have faith in God. It is likely especially since Peter is probably telling us this, is likely they had probably gotten a little bit confident in what they were doing, a little bit enjoying the popularity of healing and casting out demons. And God's grace humbles them and says, you're not completely beyond the need of the Savior. Recognizing lack of faith. The second section in this crash course on faith, this is the substance of this passage, is believing in the Lord of faith believing in the Lord of faith. And he answered them. Jesus' answer is addressed to the crowd. How do we know that? Because look what he says. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, Jesus' exasperation is expressed with the word generation generation. That's an important word. Included in this indictment was was the father, obviously, was the unbelieving crowd and the scribes, obviously. They were doubting and gloating over the disciples' failure. But I think it also includes Israel in general as a generation and it included, included the 11 disciples who were there lacking faith. Don't be too um, um, disturbed by the word, how long do I put up with you? Anexomai, literally, how long will I tolerate this? How long will I bear with you? And he's not mad at them. What he's saying is, how long am I going to be just simply a man who can fix your physical ailments rather than you understand I'm here to save your eternal souls? So apparently, the boy was not at the forefront of this crowd. They come crashing onto Jesus. They run to him. The father is there. Somehow, the boy is lagging behind because they then brought the boy to him. He may have been laid out in a, in a stiffened seizure, but they brought the boy to Jesus. Verse 20. When the boy saw Jesus, look at this. Immediately, the demon, the spirit, threw him in that moment into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. What's happening here? Oddly enough, Mark continues to tell us that the first, most accurate assessors of Jesus' true identity were demons. Mark 5, verse 6 The Garrison demonic, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, shouting with a loud voice, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God. That demon recognized who Jesus was and this demon in this boy saw Jesus and immediately throws him into a convulsion. The demons knew and the demons know who Jesus is. And Jesus, verse 21, asks the father, just the grace, the care, the compassion. It's incredible. Sir, how long has this been happening to him? Listen to the dad. It's from childhood. The the word is from, from a very young age. And then we find a footnote. This is tragic. It's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. This indicates that the whole family, the father will talk about how this all affected us, the family, in a moment. This indicates that he was probably on 24-hour surveillance by someone. This demon would find a fire, and the boy would walk over, and the demon would throw him in, into the fire. It's very likely this, this, this boy had, had scars from, from hot rocks and, and embers and timbers that were on fire. Not only that, he would go near water and the the demon would try to throw him in the water to drown him. Just think as a parent, your entire life is protecting your son from what's inside him that you can't fix. But, the father says, if you can do anything, please, please, take pity on look not him us and help us that indicates that this was an entire family trauma and drama after hearing the report of the boy's long time affliction and the man's honest desperation he says if if you can do anything Take pity on us and help us. The us is important. I bet the family was probably there in the crowd with him. The father's faith was weak, the father's faith was uninformed. The boy's affliction was impacting the whole family. Uh, Batheo literally means help us, run to the aid as we cry for help. Rescue us is a better translation. He was desperate. And remember, the nine men who represented Jesus had just tried probably one at a time or in groups to talk to this demon, commanding him to come out. No effect. Look at Jesus' quick reply. If you can, (laughs) if... This was not a question, it was an exclamation. There's a tone of dripping sarcasm if if you can. Have you not seen what I've done over the last two and a half years? Instead of majoring on his own ability, which had been on display for two plus years, he goes to the heart of the issue with the man and ultimately with the disciples. The issue was their faith. Do you not believe that I can do this? The issue was their faith, not his ability to cast out this stubborn demon. Did they believe that Jesus could do the impossible? This seemed like an impossible situation, which is why the next phrase, Jesus declares, all things are possible. This is not impossible. All things are possible to him who believes. This is the lesson. It's the point of the text and the lesson Jesus is teaching in this moment. But you must be careful here with the word all things. The word is governed by context. Jesus is not saying you can do all things. He's not saying that every one of us if we try hard enough and believe strong enough will be Olympic athletes and run the 100 meter dash in less than 10 seconds. He's not saying if I sit in my office and believe with my faith strong enough, I will be 6'4". Wouldn't that be wonderful? (laughs) I wasn't expecting a laugh out of that. (laughs) All things doesn't include sin. All things is governed here by the fact that what the disciples could not do in their flesh one can do by faith in accomplishing the will and way of God. That's the all things. Several years ago, I was um, working with some college students and one of the most tragic emails I've ever read came across my desk quoting this passage. Um, there's a good ending to this. Theology was corrected. Um, heart was, hearts were changed, but I got it email in the middle of the night from a, a student who whose uncle who he was very close to had died. And the student, quoting this passage that all things are possible to him who believes, asks me as his pastor, will you please, as a man of faith, believe hard enough and strong enough with me that God would raise my uncle from the dead? Wonderful heart. Misapplication of this text. All things are possible, meaning all things that God has commanded us and expects of us, here it was casting out demons for you and me, it's simple obedience, are possible if we believe, if we have faith. Verse 23, Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. In other words, I can cast out this demon. I can accomplish God's will. I can do what's right and what's righteous. And so could they have these nine if they had what? Believed. Now we find out that the reason that they had not been successful in this demon exorcism was a lack of faith. The father is honest enough to admit that though he indeed did believe Jesus, There was a problem. Verse 24, precious text. Immediately, the boy's father cries out. Literally, that means exclaimed. He is probably weeping. He is desperately exclaiming, I do believe, I do believe that you can. I do believe that they couldn't. I I, I brought them to you, if you can do it, but I recognize in my own question, a sliver of doubt. So he says, Lord, help my doubt, help my unbelief, which if you follow the context, oh, unbelieving generation, this father is honest enough to say, that's me. I am the unbelieving generation, but I don't want to stay in that generation. I want to be a man of faith. Help my unbelief. I don't want to stay in a faithless condition. He had crippling doubts. Yet, he still brought his boy to Jesus. What we learn here from the gracious, compassionate Jesus. Listen carefully. God is never limited by our limited faith. God is never limited by our limited or imperfect or crippled or doubting faith. This is not the, the faith movement that you might see on TV. If, if you'll believe hard enough, then God will answer all your prayers. No, God, God is acting in the midst of our faithlessness right this moment. Paul informed Timothy in 2 Timothy two thirteen, if we are faithless, if we struggle, if we doubt in our faith, he, God, remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Oh, the story. What a story in Matthew 11 with John the Baptist. He is on trial for his life. He's going to be executed. He knows that he is awaiting um, uh, a murder from, from Herod's minions. This is it. I mean, think about not knowing what was going to happen today. You could hear a knock on the cell door. You could hear the, the, the keys to the cell coming and you would know you are going out to die. His impending death reveals something I think is really encouraging to you and me. He has his friends go ask Jesus. And he, he knew Jesus. It was his cousin. He baptized Jesus. He affirmed he was a lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He, he had theological orthodoxy and confidence. And yet in the face of death, he says, are you the one or do we wait for Another. And what I find so remarkable is Jesus does not rebuke his doubt. In fact, he says, No greater man has ever lived before. Know this that in a few days, John would be taken from that prison cell, his head would be severed from his body, his faith would become sight. And he would know with full assurance and confidence that what he believed by faith was indeed true. But he had some doubts. Jesus, gracious response to Peter. Peter had doubts of of courage. Three times on the night of his betrayal, three times he denied that he even knew Jesus. Oh, I think he believed but his faith wasn't strong enough to actually be persecuted and suffer and put his life on the line. And then in the end of John, he says, you denied me three times. I want to give you a chance to affirm that you love me three times. Look at another detail in verse 25. Remember that nine disciples could not cast this strong demon out. When Jesus saw that the crowd was rapidly gathering, talk about being on the spot. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf, stop right there. First time in the narrative, we find out, not from the father, but from Jesus, the boy couldn't hear. Makes me wonder if they knew that. Makes me wonder what his condition was, whether he was responsive at all. He was deaf and mute. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, "You deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of him and then to slam the door shut and do not enter him again." Jesus speaks directly to the demon who has already demonstrated that he knew who Jesus was in verse 20, and then we see the final throws, the final scene in this boy's affliction in verse 26. After crying out, now imagine a crowd watching this, the silence, the the intrigue, the curiosity, the fear. He screams out, he cries out, throws the boy into a final terrible set of convulsions and then exits the boy. He went from a screaming, foaming at the mouth, stiffening, grinding his teeth, tortured soul to this. Then the boy became so much like a corpse that the crowd said, most of them said, he's dead. Jesus killed him. He's dead. About Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. Can you use your sanctified imagination to see that? Quiet crowd. The boy laying there in silence. Jesus reaches down and picks him up. Jesus did what the disciples could not do. He did what only he can. He responded to the father's doubting faith and he is ready today to respond to yours. Recognizing the lack of faith, believing the Lord of faith, and then the third section in this crash course on faith, learning the lesson of faith. Jesus now has a private session with the 12. (laughs) Learning the lesson of faith. Verse 28, when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. So now we have an audience with just Jesus and the men. <laughs> the crowd is, is not allowed in here. And they say, Jesus, why could we not drive it out? It's a good question. We tried, all nine of us, maybe individually, maybe in pairs, maybe together, maybe all at the same time. We could not do anything about this. And here's the answer. And Jesus said to them, this kind This stubborn demon, this class of demon, this wicked demon cannot come out by anything but prayer. What is he saying? You can't do it, so you must ask with faith. God to do it is a dependent leaning into the Savior. This is not, by the way, a focus on the power of prayer. I get so uncomfortable when people talk about the power of prayer. They have faith in faith. This is not faith in faith. This is praying to God who alone can do the impossible. It's faith in God, believing God, taking Him at His word, understanding His promises, applying them, not allowing your senses to create unnecessary doubts because you can't see, taste, feel, you can't experience spiritual realities. We must be very careful. We are not exercising faith in faith. This demon was so strong and so resistant that the disciples were unable to deal with it. And there are countless struggles and afflictions in your life and in mine that are beyond us as well that can only be dealt with by faith, by prayer. Listen, don't be surprised when God brings difficulties into your life to extract from you, think about this, to pull to the surface, to bring to mind, to put on the forefront of your thinking through these difficulties, through these failures that you desperately need him. Don't be surprised when he exhausts every possible human answer to your situation so that you see that not only is only he left, but he should have been the first place we came in in recognizing our doubts and our troubles. What do we take away from this? I think, first of all, it's good to recognize your doubts and bring them to God. God. Would you be honest about your doubts? Listen, have you have you, either in the middle of a trial or laying at night in your bed, actually asked questions like, well, I, I, think, I think this is true. I, I hope this is true. I've banked my whole eternity on this. And, and you have moments of doubt. The doubt is not the problem. Not resolving the doubt with faith is the sin. Again, John the Baptist wasn't rebuked for his doubts and his doubts were resolved. Yes, we have faith, but can we admit our faith is weak? We doubt, we have trouble believing God and his word. We have trouble remembering. We have trouble having absolute trust, especially when the answers to our prayers are not immediate May I suggest that God sometimes does not answer our prayers immediately so that He will increase our leaning on Him, our dependence on Him, and our faith in Him? It's a grace that He doesn't resolve all of our problems in the snap of a finger. He knows our weakness of faith, and He is ever ready to come to our aid. If we become faithless, he remains faithful. Doubts do not nullify truth. Doubts do not nullify the spirit of God's work. Doubts do not nullify the truth of God and the word of God. But we can rightly address our doubts with the means of grace, which is God's word and accessing his comfort, his guidance, and his counsel through prayer. Also, secondly, faith is fed by our knowledge of God and his word. How do you increase your faith? How can you increase your faith? Faith comes from hearing, Romans ten seventeen says, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. In other words, the more exposure you, you have with the scripture on your mind, it will increase faith. Can I just say as as sweetly and as gently and as sternly as I can, if you're not spending regular time with God and his word, don't expect your faith to be strong. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, a word about Christ, the gospel of Christ, the truth of Christ, the, the canon of scripture. Yes, this is the read your Bible more sermon. And thirdly, Remember that in this life we are walking by faith, but one day we will have sight. One day it all will make sense. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. It doesn't mean that God is not with us, absent from his physical presence. Then he says, for we walk now by faith, Not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord in heaven. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, in this life or the next, to be pleasing to Him. All of us struggle in our faith. What a kind savior who responded to this man. What a gracious example that Mark has given to us to hear this man say what is really in our hearts. I do believe, but you gotta help my doubts. You gotta help my unbelief. Have you come to that point? If you haven't, take it on good authority that God will bring you to that place eventually. In his book, Future Grace, which is my favorite book by John Piper, he has this little illustration, it's so helpful. Suppose you are in a car race and your enemy, who doesn't want you to finish the race, throws mud on your windshield. The fact that you temporarily lose sight of your goal and start to swerve does not mean that you're going to quit the race. And it certainly doesn't mean that you are on the wrong race track. Otherwise, the enemy wouldn't bother you at all. What it means is that you should turn on your windshield wipers and use your windshield washer. When anxiety strikes and blurs our vision of God and God in his glory and the greatness of the future that he plans for us, this does not mean that we are faithless or that we will not make it to heaven. It means that our faith is being attacked At first, blow our belief in God's promises may sputter and swerve, but whether we stay on track and make it to the finish line depends on whether, by grace, we set in motion a process of resistance, whether we fight back against the unbelief of anxiety. Will we turn on the windshield wipers and will we use our windshield washer? End quote. How do you do that? How do you turn on the windshield wipers and how do you squirt the washer on your, on your windshield? By reading God's word and believing it and applying it and living it day in and day out. By refusing to believe your feelings when they compete with what God has said. By refusing to say all is desperate, all is lost, all 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 is all is bad when all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's by believing God over your feelings so that your thinking is now in line with God and that's where we live and that's how you change. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? We have to get to what we know. That's where faith is fed, faith is articulated, that's where doubts are resolved. And even as doubts are evaporating, don't be surprised if they, if they swing back in. We are walking by faith. We don't have sight yet. Paul told the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he has chosen you from the beginning for a salvation, listen, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in The truth by believing God and His Word, not your experience and your feelings. How's your faith? How deep are your doubts? Can you come to a place as a Christian where you come to the Lord and you say, You see my heart, you know my doubts. I do I do believe I, I be, there 's no other place to turn, but I have doubts please help, please help my unbelief for others you 've never believed in the first place, and this is a great day for you because the gates of god 's mercy are open wide. He stands at heaven 's portal in and says, come and be with me. How do you do that? By believing that he sent his only son to take the punishment that you deserve to die on a cross, to be judged as, and forsaken instead of us. And after that death, the perfect lamb of God, dying for our sins, he rose from the grave. If you believe that today, your faith can begin and doubts will be, begin to quell and you will walk with with the people around you strongly toward the open arms of Savior who one day will say you've been walking by faith now look now look it'll be sight let's pray